drawing some lessons that uh, through our uh, study of the book of Romans I've described that there is something which is uh, called Christianity maybe that does not deserve the name Uh, it is a kind of perverse Christianity um, that would establish peace through war a Christianity willing to hurt and harm uh, the other in the name of Christ that would in fact uh, sacrifice the other for the self I think this perverse Christianity confuses the nation state of the United States or with other uh, national entities with the kingdom of God it confuses the principalities and powers of Christ uh, with uh, you know the principalities and powers of this world This perverse type of Christian I've described simply imagines that perhaps they are the instrument of God establishing his kingdom and willing to justify every kind of evil in the name of Christ. In other words, this perverse kind of Christianity is just one more ideology that's used uh, to justify the self. And last week at the heart of the problem, then I suggested that is our very doctrine of the cross of Christ. Um, That Anselm's doctrine of divine satisfaction that is an exchange between the father and the son tends to leave out the human reality. That is, it's uh, an exchange within the Trinity that really does not picture what's happening in the New Testament. Calvin's picture of penal substitution takes this a step further so that the God of the Bible is often portrayed like a kind of pagan deity uh, that, uh, you know, uh, demanding violent sacrifice. And so we lose an understanding in this uh, of the difference, the real world difference that Christ makes in the lived reality of our own lives. Uh, we lose the difference that there's two kingdoms, there's two logics, there's two ways of thinking. Um, and so there is a kind of moral failure and there's a kind of intellectual failure, I'm afraid, in the Christianity that often passes under that name today. And so today what I'd like to talk about is the picture of the meaning of the death of Christ as we have it portrayed in, in the Bible And what we will see is that, in fact, the way that this is often talked about tends to mystify something that is not at all mystical. But the question is, where do we begin? And, uh, of course, we begin with understanding who Christ is in the the Gospels, that uh, the life of Christ, then, is the place in which the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God are in confrontation. So in the life of Christ, we see the powers, the, you know, whether they be the Pharisees, the Romans, or the various religious powers that come up against Christ. And that confrontation is the beginning then of the cosmic conflict that we've all joined. Um, so when we talk about the meaning of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we're referring back to these real-world historical events. This has happened And so we may be trying to describe it in various metaphors or uh, maybe even theories of atonement is too strong because we do not want to take away from these real world historical events. 
The Gospels are the standard by which we measure. And even, uh, you know, uh, with the establishment of the church and the writing of the epistles, there's various metaphors that are used in Scripture uh, that themselves then refer back, that we're going to understand what they mean, uh, only through the Gospels themselves. So redemption from slavery, adoption into a family, legal redemption, military victory. But what I believe holds all of these together and what we encounter in the Gospels is that Christ's death defeated the power of sin, death, and the devil. Defeated the powers of evil. That is that Christ's death and life, death, and resurrection is a real-world confrontation uh, with the problem of evil. That humankind has been held under the dominion of uh, Satan or of sin and death. And this is the understanding of the meaning of Christianity that lasted for a thousand years up until the time of Anselm of Canterbury. Um, Even in the Old Testament, there is a conflict that's described as God's ongoing conflict with the powers that be, with the, you know, the cosmic and human agents who oppose him and whom he, you know, there is the promise that he's going to obtain ultimate victory over. But this is intensified when we get to the New Testament. The role given to Satan by Jesus and his followers uh, is without precedent in apocalyptic writings. According to John, Jesus believed that Satan was, in John 12, 31, the prince of this world. Uh, And the word translated prince is archon. Uh, customarily referred to the highest official in the city or in a region in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, Jesus and his followers believe that God, of course, was the ultimate Lord over all creation, and, but they clearly viewed Satan as in some way the functional Lord at the present time. The principalities and powers of Rome, of course, were a kind of incarnation of the work of the devil, the uh, emperor worship, uh, could be directly identified with the work of Satan. So when we say Satan or the devil, don't get a picture of an otherworldly kind of being. No, that it was the work that uh, the work of the devil that we encounter in the principalities, in the systems of this world. So Satan in Luke is depicted as possessing all the kingdoms of this world. To the point where he could even offer those kingdoms to Jesus. And of course the temptation for all of us is to bow down and worship at the throne of the principalities and powers of this world. uh, In a kind of, you know, process of being co-opted by those powers. The picture is that, you know, Satan shows him all these things. He says, I will give you all this dominion and its glory. It's all been handed over to me. Satan says, I can give it to whomever I wish. Now, of course, this is Satan talking, but we also have the picture uh, from the other writers that the kingdoms of the world can be described in Revelation, particularly, as under Satan's rule. Revelation 13.7, all authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him, to the beast. 
In Revelation, the redemptive work, though, and this is our hope, that Christ brings about is then to defeat uh, the, the beast. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So the issue of who reigns, who rules, who's the king, is a big deal in Revelation and in the New Testament. John goes so far as to claim that the entire world is under the power of the evil one in 1 John 5.19. Paul calls Satan the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4 and the ruler of the kingdom of the air in Ephesians 2.2. And so Paul in typical apocalyptic fashion depicts the present world as fundamentally evil and under the reign of Satan. And Jesus then gave himself for our sins, as he says in Galatians 1.4, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. He says, therefore, do not be partakers with them in Ephesians 5.6, for you were formerly from the darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And I'm going to just uh, mention here a focus that is brought out again and again is that under the rule of Satan, there is darkness, ignorance, blindness, and that that light, or the light of Christ, dispels the darkness. That is, that there is a real uh, process of maturity in human understanding. That people's minds have been blinded. And that's part of the problem, or that's what's at stake in this, uh, this issue. But everything about Jesus was centered then on vanquishing this empire, taking back the world that Satan had seized, and restoring its rightful viceroys. Remember that in Genesis, the dominion of the world was given to mankind, to humankind. And that dominion is pictured as restored in Christ. That is, he reigns at the right hand of God, and we reign with him. If we endure, Second Timothy says, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Uh, Revelation 5.10 says, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. But we are to be participants in the reign of Christ. I believe that that reign then, in a sense, we are already engaged in this cosmic conflict in the images that we are beginning to establish the reign of Christ in and through what we do in the church. This was the first you know, uh, sermon preached to a Gentile when Peter describes to Cornelius about what Jesus was all about. He says he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. So when Jesus heals the sick and he drives out evil spirits, Satan's kingdom is diminished. Uh, Satan's kingdom, you know, we can say that Satan himself is bound. And as Matthew pictures it, God's kingdom is com- coming. When Jesus heals the blind man, uh, uh, you know, he's well, actually, he's healing the blind, the mute. And people say, by what power do you do this? They say, it must be by the power of Beelzebub. And he says, no, God's kingdom is not divided. 
That is, the sign of the coming of the kingdom is precisely Jesus' healing ministry, his casting out of demons. And of course, the image is not that Jesus would, you know, uh, do good in order to accomplish evil. Rather, they see in these divided kingdoms that you do evil to accomplish good. Jesus says, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. So God's kingdom does not do evil. Period. Right? It does not engage in violence. It does not engage in unrighteousness to establish itself. The kingdoms of this world are divided, doing violence to establish peace, doing evil to attain goodness. But all of Christ's activity is pictured as a conflict with the devil. God's Son took flesh and became man that he might overthrow the power of the devil and bring an end to his works. Hebrews 2.14, it says that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. There's the reason that Jesus came. There's the reason that he died on the cross. 1 John says the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God has appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So, and by the way, John goes on to say here, you can clearly identify who is who. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness, he's not of God. Nor the one who does not love his brother. Where there is no agape love, where there is no agape fellowship, Christ is not there. And though many may do, you know, good works in the name of Christ as pictured in the judgment, the picture is also, I never knew you. You know, away with you, ye workers of iniquity. So there's no mystery in identifying authentic Christianity. Is there agape love? Do they lay down their life? Are we willing to lay down our life for our brother? Or does selfish ambition reign so that hurting your brother is pictured as the way to build the kingdom? Those who treat their brothers hatefully in the name of Christ, John pictures, are not worthy of the name of Christ. Paul taught that whatever earthly struggles disciples found themselves in, he says the real struggle is in Ephesians and and Corinthians, the ruler's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As 1 Peter 5.8 says it, the kingdom of the roaring lion was an ever-present reality to Jesus and his earliest disciples. Now there are many references, so with this we could build on this. There are also then many other spiritual forces that are kind of aligned with the work of Satan. But the rulers, principalities, powers and authorities, the dominions, the cosmic powers, the thrones, spiritual forces. uh, In Colossians, elemental spirits of the universe. So according to the New Testament, the central thing Jesus did was to drive out the prince of this world. John 12, 31. Judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. How? When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. 
and the ruler of this world will be cast out. So the death of Christ is where this cosmic conflict culminates. So Jesus lived, died, rose again to establish a new reign that 1 Corinthians says would put all enemies under his feet. Uh, Jesus depicts his power over Satan as a sign of his kingdom and power. He says, it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So Jesus is the one stronger than this strong man, the devil. Uh, Jesus is the one who casts out demons by the finger of God. This is the sign. The cosmic conflict has begun and Jesus then is going to reign. In John 10.10 he says, While the cosmic thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, Jesus came into the world to vanquish the thief so that all may have life and have it abundantly. He disarmed, Colossians says, the rulers and authorities. So in a word, Jesus came to end the cosmic war that had been raging from time immemorial and to set set Satan's captives free. Uh, Luke says, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. You know, this is the great imagery, the great metaphor of the Old Testament. Deliverance from slavery. The Jews were enslaved in Egypt. And he's delivered them. But of course that image is that they are enslaved to sin is the real problem. They're blind, but they're set at liberty. Those who are oppressed are set at liberty. And then John, uh, he refers to the year of Jubilee to, set, uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this is what was promised in the history of Israel. So in... Uh, conclusion this this point you could take the outline of all of scripture the first prophecy what is it about the to crush the head of the serpent who who originally deceived humanity the first christian sermon what is it about it is a picture that quotes peter quotes psalms 110 by the way the most quoted old testament passage the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore the entire house of Israel will know certainly that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Who are the enemies? The ones that crucified him. How has he won this battle? In and through his death. He's overpowered. The worst thing that they could do was kill him, and he, in and through his resurrection, has defeated them. Um, one of the key things that we can draw from this, and I think the thing that is often missed, is that we should no longer be deluded. We're no longer deceived. Uh, we're no longer under the principalities and powers of this world. The way this is pictured in Scripture is in various forms. One of the ways is the law or the form of logic of this world. We're no longer slaves. You know, we have been set free from this law of sin and death. 
the law then is, is not always then just depicted as the law of sin and death, but the idea that people who are under the law are in some way deluded because they need the aid of the law. Paul says in Galatians, we are no longer children tossed to and fro like waves of the sea. Jesus tells his disciples, you're no longer like slaves, but you're like my friends. Paul says we were held in bondage under the elemental things of this world. That is, the bondage included the bondage of the mind, the delusion, the deception of Satan. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, and that we might receive adoption as sons. And then the picture is that once we're sons, we enter in that Jesus says, I've told you everything. I'm not holding anything back. You have the understanding that I've given to you. That is that there is a fullness of maturity, and that maturity is inclusive of the understanding. Ephesians puts it this way, when he ascended on high... He led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And among these gifts, the knowledge of the Son of God to come to mature manhood. No longer children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. To state it point blank, we are no longer deceived. We can name the idols. The doctrine uh, of sin is one that we, we can understand what it is. And the unfortunate thing, tied to the misrepresentation of the death of Christ, is a misrepresentation of the problem of sin. The sin, the, the picture that has come down to us, pictures sin as if it is a mystery. That Christ has not exposed. But what we've just said is no, Christ defeated the devil. He's overcome sin. He's exposed the lie. So we can account for the mystery of sin on the basis of the salvation that we have. Part of what it means to overcome sin is to dispel that notion that it's a mystery. We can account for the deception. And we can then examine the depth and the seriousness of the problem. In other words, we should be able to apprehend this thing. We should be able to name this thing. And I'm afraid in our kind of weak-minded Christianity, we don't even recognize the evil that we ourselves may be participating in. Some theologians have complicated this. Augustine said that concerning the ancient ancient sin, and of course this is where the doctrine of original sin comes from, nothing is more obviously part of our preaching, yet nothing is more impenetrable to the understanding. He says we can't understand this thing. So what has happened, we've blurred this like we can't understand sin, And therefore, we can't understand salvation. It's all an exchange between the Father and the Son. And so original sin and the doctrine of divine satisfaction and penal substitution have, in a sense, attacked the very heart of Christianity. Calvin continues this. uh, His explanation of corruption, it, it vaguely somehow spreads to the human race. 
And salvation is a mystery that does not touch upon the delusion and deceit of the devil that I've just described. That entire understanding of the New Testament is left out of this doctrine as we have it in uh, the doctrine of propitiation or penal substitution. The result is that sin is not subject to explanation in light of salvation. But it becomes the lens through which salvation itself is interpreted. That is, sin is a mystery, salvation is a mystery. We don't understand it, we just kind of magically participate in it. G.C. Burkauer talks about the doctrine of original sin. He says it does not permit deeper insight. There is a riddle that can be dispelled and that can make way for a new and deeper understanding. But the riddle of sin is not of this sort and lies on an entirely different plane. It can never permit a greater or deeper insight into the nature and origin of sin. No, I would say. Sin is not a mystery or a riddle in uh, in this sense. And the nature and origin of sin, the dynamic of sin, is reducible to a system. We can identify it. And we need to be able to identify the principalities and powers, the basic principles of this world. Because if we can't identify it, we are working according to those basic principles, I'm afraid. And could it be the case that as we've mystified sin, that's become part of the lie? Where the mystery remains, there is a failure to grasp the truth of Christ and the reality about sin. So where sin is mystified or reified, the danger is that the formulation of the problem of sin binds itself to a perception which is in fact part of the problem. Salvation understood as the overcoming of sin means sin is known, it's exposed. We can identify the devil. We can identify the principalities and powers. We can identify the king. If we say sin is a mystery, how will we know the kingdom of God from the kingdom of darkness? How will we know the kingdom of light from the kingdom of the devil? So we can call out the devil. We can name the idol. We're no longer deluded. And what we've been saying is that there is a lie, a deception that is at the heart of sin which the devil has foisted upon us, which we participated in, and the message of Paul in the New Testament. Here is his first, you know, here's here's his words in Acts. He's being sent to the Gentiles. Why? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Through Paul, God was going to free Gentiles from the God of this age, he says, who had blinded the minds of the unbelievers in 2 Corinthians 4.4. He set us free from the power of Satan, and we've been brought into the power of God, and that includes our minds, that includes our thought, that includes our logic, That includes the basic principles by which we proceed. So I'm afraid we're surrounded by a Christianity and Christians that assume the doctrine 
and action that has taken place in Christ leaves us blind. We're not blind anymore. We can name this thing. We know what evil is. This is not what the New Testament teaches. And I believe this blind, perverse Christianity is not the faith of the New Testament. But the faith of the New Testament is one in which we are free. We're free indeed. We're treated as mature co-participants in Christ and the Trinity. So let's enjoy that salvation by being transformed in our minds, in our thought, as Paul uh, declares to us, commands us to do. Let's sing.